Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. All right, we're going to uh, kind of introduce our subject for today and our study in these 15 minutes or so. And uh, I wanted to say many times when I witness to unsaved people and share the gospel with them, I will relate uh, the, res- the truth of the resurrection of Christ to John fourteen six, where the Lord said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And then I'll say something like, uh, in that verse, Jesus claims to be the only way to heaven and to God, and he proved it. He proved that claim by rising from the dead. And we as believers understand that, uh, but unbelievers don't always understand it. That's just a very simple yet very effective way of witnessing. Uh, in fact, this the lady I told you about this morning, and by the way, that, that thing on Fox News um, I saw the video of it recorded, but that was live this morning. She actually said that live. So uh, it was interesting and used kind of the same, the same uh, approach because she did quote John 14, 6 also as she presented the gospel. That's um, a very simple yet effective way of witnessing. And in fact, you can take it even a step further. Jesus not only... Uh, claimed to be the only way to God and proved it by rising from the dead. But he also predicted, as you know, predicted beforehand that he would be crucified and would rise from the dead. In Matthew 16, 21, right after Simon Peter's confession uh, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, uh, the Bible says in in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Pardon me. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus predicted and announced his death and his resurrection a number of times to his disciples. And as some of you, I think you got a hold of my sermon notes, some of you brethren this morning, you're going to hear some of the same passages this morning in the message. But he announced his death and resurrection a number of times to the disciples. Matthew 17, 22 and 23. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Matthew twenty eighteen and 19, Jesus said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And also in John two, eighteen through 21, the Bible says, The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you Show to us, seeing that you do these things. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now think about this for a minute. 
it wouldn't be too impressive in one sense to predict your own death. Everybody dies, right? Or uh, even to predict your own resurrection because the Jews believed that everyone would be raised up on the last day, some to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. But the Lord Jesus Christ did what? He predicted where he would be crucified, where he would die, Jerusalem. He predicted how he would die, crucifixion. He predicted when he would rise again after three days. So a little bit different than just saying, well, I'm going to die, you know, or I'm going to rise again. He was very specific. And that's how the Lord Jesus proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that only he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God, the only way to heaven. In fact, on this Lord's Day, which we refer to as Resurrection Sunday, what we want to do is study and emphasize the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to be able to teach you anything new today or anything that you don't already know, but we are going to focus on it, and we're going to focus and emphasize um, Again, those things, these wonderful and monumental truths that are so precious to us as believers having to do with the death, burial, and resurrection. So I'm saying, I kind of titled the message, we're going to take another look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, And in this particular lesson, we want to focus on what I'm going to call the pre-resurrection scene. Um, I think originally I had titled my message, The Resurrection Scene. Uh, But this is most of the things we're going to talk about, except for one, of course, uh, has to do with the pre-resurrection scene. Think about it. Had you been there just prior to the resurrection itself, what would you have witnessed? What would you have seen? What would you have heard? Uh, What facts would you have reported had you been, let's say, a reporter for a a newspaper or a television network? What would you have reported? Well, this morning I want to be your reporter, Buck. Um, uh, Not everybody likes reporters, but uh, hopefully you'll like the report I'm going to give to you today. Uh, I want to be your reporter, and it will be solely based on what the Word of God says and tells us. And we're going to look at uh, seven facts, seven facts, seven very important facts that made up that pre-resurrection scene. And of course, again, we'll be taking it from the word of God. Fact number one, we'll just do right now. Uh, Jesus Christ was dead. Our Lord Jesus Christ was dead. Now, some liberal scholars, they say that Jesus was not really dead in an effort to deny the resurrection. They say that he was just passed out or he was in a coma and due to the cool, damp tomb, he revived. Okay, they actually say that and you can read about that. Um, They call this the what theory? The swoon theory. And I'm sure many of you have heard about that. This theory claims that after a Roman scourging and being crucified on a cross by a professional Roman executioner, Jesus did not actually die. He just swooned. He was in a coma. He passed out. 
When he was laid in the coolness of the tomb, he revived, they say, and he then came out of the tomb and appeared to his disciples who mistakenly thought that he had risen. Well, that obviously denies not only the resurrection, but it also denies the ton of evidence in Scripture um, that tells us about the resurrection. It denies the truth of the Word of God. Because the Gospels clearly show us that Jesus was, think about it, he was slapped, he was beaten repeatedly, he was scourged and tortured by a Roman professional Roman torturer. He was crucified on a, on a cross, one of the most horrifying uh, ways and painful ways to die known to man. And God's word makes it clear that he died. He was dead. He was, after all of the physical abuse and suffering and crucifixion, dead at the scene. And the Bible makes that very clear. Mark chapter 15. We're going to share quite a bit of scripture today in the entire message. Mark 15, 22 to 39. When they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man would take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified the two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. John 19, which our brother brought up earlier, John 19, 31 to 35, says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came 
So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Now, blood and water separated, coming out of a person's body, is a sure sign of death. In fact, Michael Green comments on this, and he says, quote, we, are told, we are told on eyewitness authority that blood and water came out of the pierced side of Jesus. The eyewitness clearly attached great importance to this. Had Jesus been alive when the spear pierced his side, strong spouts of blood would have emerged with every heartbeat. Instead, the observer noticed a semi-solid dark red clot seeping out, distinct and separate from the accompanying watery serum. This is evidence of massive clotting of the blood in the main arteries and is exceptionally strong medical proof of death. It is all the more impressive because the evangelist, John, could not possibly have realized its significance to a pathologist. The blood and water from the spear thrust is proof positive that Jesus was already dead. End of quote. I'm sure a number of you remember the late Paul Little, Paul E. Little, very well-known Bible teacher and scholar and uh, even an apologist. He says this, quote, But let us assume for a moment that Christ was buried alive and swooned. Is it possible to believe that he would have survived three days in a damp tomb without food or water or attention of any kind? Would he have survived being wound in spice-laden grave clothes? Would he have had the strength to extricate himself from the grave clothes, push the heavy stone away from the mouth of the cave, overcome the Roman guards, and walk miles on feet that had been pierced with spikes? Such a belief is more fantastic than the simple fact of the resurrection itself. End of quote. Well, it's so true, isn't it? And another man by the, David, by the name of David Strauss, he was a German scholar. He was not a believer. You say, well, why are you quoting him? Well, notice. Uh, he was not a believer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he even rejected the swoon theory, and that's why I'm bringing him up. This German author said, he stated, quote, It is impossible that one who had just come forth from the grave, half dead, who crept about weak and ill, who stood in need of medical treatment, of bandaging, uh, strengthening, and tender care, and who at last succumbed to suffering, could ever have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, that he was the prince of life. This lay at the bottom of their future ministry. Such a resuscitation could only have weakened the impression which he had made upon them in life and in death, or at the most could have given it a sorrowful voice, but could by no possibility have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm 
elevated or elevated their reverence into worship. In other words, although Strauss does not believe in the resurrection, he also does not believe in this swoon theory. He does acknowledge that a Christ who simply was resuscitated after swooning could never have convinced the disciples that he had risen from the dead. And so it's interesting that even unbelievers can can make the point, you know, uh, at least that Jesus was dead. That is a fact. Professional soldiers from Rome, Rome, professional executioners had crucified Jesus. They had killed him. And there is no doubt whatsoever that it's a historical fact that Jesus died, that he was dead. And why did he die? What was his purpose? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And Paul wrote, as a brother quoted earlier too, 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, if Jesus, folks, if Jesus only swooned and was revived, then both he and his disciples were involved in flagrant lies, right? Because they all testified to the fact that he had died and, of course, that he rose again from the dead. And as Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 15, if he swooned and he, he revived, then as Christians, we of all men are most to be pitied. Why? Because we've been deceived. We are count, We are counting on that fact to be true. We are committing our eternal destinies to that truth. And of course, praise the Lord, it is true. So fact number one, Jesus was dead. And we'll continue in the next few minutes and uh, in our next session and continue on with those seven truths, okay? Thank you. Turn the remainder of our Bible instruction time over to Brother Mike Fitzgerald. Okay, good to see you again. Let's have a word of prayer, right? Father, thank you for your word. We praise you for all that we've celebrated thus far today for the Lord's Supper, remembering our Savior and his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection, and uh, remembering all that he means to us, loving and adoring him, adoring him. Father, please help us now and help me as I deliver this message. Help us to rejoice in the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and guide us by your Holy Spirit. Lead us and may our hearts be refreshed as we look at your word and take it in and listen to you speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to get back to where we left off. Thank you. We're talking about uh, these seven truths having to do with the pre-resurrection scene mainly, uh, although we're not certainly not ignoring the resurrection. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. And the first one we saw is that uh, our Lord certainly was dead. Jesus was dead. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And uh, we really, I think, proved that from the scriptures we looked at it. Um, fact number two, let's, let's move on. Fact number two, the tomb belonged to a wealthy man from Arimathea. And we've kind of heard about that too. I still think some of you got my sermon notes this week somehow. But the tomb belonged to a wealthy man from Arimathea. And the tomb that Jesus Christ was buried in uh, was donated, as we know, by a rich man named Joseph, who was from the city of Arimathea. Uh, we read this in Matthew 27, 57 to 60. Uh, God's word says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also became, had become, had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of, out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. We also read this in John 19.41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So the Lord Jesus Christ was buried in a rich man's tomb, carefully carved out of solid rock. But the interesting thing is that the Bible had predicted this some 700 years before it even happened. This is Isaiah 53, 9. The prophet speaks of the coming suffering servant. And he says, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. What a prophecy that is. And it really uh, points out the reliability and the accuracy of the scriptures to us. So fact number one, very simple. The Lord Jesus was dead, having been crucified on the cross. Fact number two, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb, hewn out of solid rock. And fact number three is this. Jesus was given a rich man's burial. Jesus was given a rich man's burial. This kind of overlaps, obviously, with fact uh, number two. But the unique thing about this is that Jesus Christ, even though he became poor, that you and I might become rich, and even though while alive he had no place to lie his head, he was still given a rich man's burial and that according to the prophecy of, of Scripture, like I said in Isaiah. Um, John 19, we also read about Joseph of Arimathea. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body, uh, Nicodemus, who had first come to him, to Jesus, by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. 
about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus were in a hurry, as we know, to embalm and uh, bury Jesus in the tomb. Why? Because the Sabbath was soon to begin. So they were feeling the pressure of that. And the Sabbath began at sunset Friday evening and lasted until sunset Saturday evening. And a burial never took place on a Sabbath or a holy day or a high day, as some versions translate it. Uh, so in order not to, avi- not to violate the Jewish Sabbath, the burial process was done hastily. And the burial had to take place quickly just because, mainly because they didn't embalm the bodies like we do where today in modern times they inject the body with uh, preservatives and fluids that, that at least slow down the, uh, the rate of corruption uh, in the body. They didn't do that back then quite that way, but it was a warm climate. And in order to avoid the decomposition of the body, uh, the rapid decomposition, because of that, they buried the body quickly and they embalmed it quickly also. Now, ultimately, that was not a problem for the Lord Jesus. Why? Because God did not allow him to undergo decay, right? And you can read about that in Acts chapter 13, 35 Uh, to 37 if you want to look that up another time but normally in preparing a body for burial the body was washed it was wrapped loosely in a linen cloth initially and carried to the burial place on a wooden stretcher and the burial could take place in a natural cave or it could take place in an artificial one uh, an artificial tomb that is that's been hewn out of the rock and of course that's what happened here the artificial one uh, was called the sepulchre, that, that tough word. Now, it is a tough word. Uh, you know, how do you pronounce that? Sepulchre, I think, something like that. And um, he was buried, excuse me, in one of those. Uh, let me mention the Jewish embalming. It did not have anything to do with the inner organs or fluids of the body like we, we think of today, but only dealt with the exterior. And it essentially was a mummified body where the body was wrapped in cloth, cloth strips and wrappings and glue-like spices. Uh, And what I've just described to you would be the common way to bury, uh, would be the common way to bury a common person, not one who was wealthy exceptionally wealthy. But our Lord Jesus was buried in the way that a Jewish person of great wealth and honor was buried or would be buried. Um, Again, in, in Bible times, preparing the Bible, excuse me, preparing the body for burial in accord with the Jewish custom, it was usually washed and then straightened. And then they used strips of cloth about 12 inches wide And they wrapped, uh, bandaged very tightly the body from the armpits 
uh, to the ankles, and aromatic spices, expensive spices, again, for people of wealth and people of notability, uh, very expensive spices like myrrh and aloes and cassia. They were made up into a gummy-like paste and they consistency, and they were placed between the wrappings or the folds of the cloth. And the paste uh, would do a couple of things. It saturated the cloth, but it eventually hardened into uh, really a, a preservative mold or cocoon that was formed around the body. So it was similar, I'm not going to say it was exactly like the Egyptian mummies, but it was similar in that sense, that it hardened kind of a mold or cocoon around the body. And a cap was placed on the head, also called in the Bible a face covering, uh, and often the jaw was held in position uh, by a bandage under the chin. Uh, So a lot went on in terms of how they buried a person of note and a person of wealth. Uh, We we have to keep in mind, of course, uh, that the spices and the protective mold or cocoon served a number of purposes. I'll just give you three or four of them. One is a preservative to kind of slow down, and that's why we can refer to it in a sense as embalming, slow down the decaying process of the body, uh, and that's kind of what a mummy did too in terms of that form of uh, burial. Uh, it also served to serve as a cement or bonding agent which would glue, um, kind of a bonding agent which would glue and form the cloth wrappings into a solid covering. Uh, thirdly, it was used to retard the stench of the corruption of the body, to retard the stench once the body began to decay. Again, the Lord Jesus' body did not decay. But in terms of that method of burial, that's why they did it that way, because most people's bodies did. Um, You'll remember the story of Lazarus, Lazarus, John 11. He was buried in this way, uh, in this manner that we're describing. And you recall that Martha indicated to the Lord Jesus that after four days there would be a what? A stench. Yeah, yeah, it, it would just stink. It would be bad. If you've ever, and unfortunately in my lifetime I've had a few... Uh, opportunities to smell a a dead human body. It is not a pleasant smell at all. Uh, So that was part of the reason they did that, to retard the stench. And then another reason for the protective mold or cocoon was to show love, honor, and respect to the person who had died. Now we do that today. How? We use a coffin, right? Or a casket. Um, and, and people, well, more than that, expensive caskets, uh, headstones, all kinds of things, accoutrements that go along with a funeral and when a person dies. Um, but on the other hand, if you're not a person of means, your funeral, including your casket, may be very modest, you know. Uh, but in, in Jesus' day, that was the method they used to honor, uh, to honor the Lord Jesus Christ as he had died. Um, I think of that about today, the fact that people spend all, spend all kinds of money on caskets, depending on how, uh, what your means is and how well off you are. Uh, but the Bible says the Lord Jesus, in Matthew 8.20 and Luke 9.58, he had no place to lay his head. I mean, he didn't have anything but the clothes on his back, basically, Right? 
Um, and they gambled, <laughs> they gambled for those. In John 20, 3 to 8, we read this. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together. And the other disciple, probably John because he was younger, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings we've been talking about lying there and he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and knowing Peter, he entered the tomb uh, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw and believed. So yes, Jesus was given a rich man's burial, but the disciples discover, Peter and John discover that the tomb was empty. He was no longer in the tomb. And so this leads us to the fourth fact I want to talk about that makes up this pre-resurrection Scene, and that is the stone or the stone which sealed the tomb shut. Uh, Jesus was embalmed and he was mummified, if you will, according to the burial customs of the Jews. But Jesus' body, only his body, was in a rock tomb. Jesus' body, remember, Jesus wasn't there, right? His body was in the tomb. And his body was, in a sense, locked in the tomb by a large and heavy stone. In fact, uh, it was probably a disc-shaped rock. And we read about this in Matthew 27, uh, 57 through 60. We're going to look at that in a moment. But usually in front of the entrance of the tomb, uh, there was a groove hewn out in the ground and the the rock being round or disc shaped uh, was able to be rolled very difficult but they rolled it back to close the tomb the stone was the stone which covered Jesus tomb uh, was very large as Matthew 27 tells us and Mark says in Mark 16 4 that it was extremely large Okay, extremely large. It was a, Matthew says it was a large stone. Mark says extremely large. I guess it was their, their viewpoint. And this was normal. This is what they used. Uh, a normal tombstone took several men to roll it into place because of its weight and its size. Uh, often they would weigh between one and two tons. Can you imagine? One and two tons. Um, the question is why such a huge stone? Well, the large stone was used for a couple of reasons. One, to protect the tomb from animals and grave robbers. To be secure, right? To protect the tomb. And once the stone was in place, it was extremely difficult to move it. Uh, Often it was rolled down an incline into a locked position so that it was super difficult to move it. Um, Again, security was a, a reason here. So the pre-resurrection scene was composed of a dead Jesus, a rock tomb, a Jewish embalming and burial, and a large or extremely large stone which secured the entrance of the tomb. But there's another fact, number five, and that is the Roman seal. The Roman seal, and I think this is fascinating. We read this in Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Now on the next day, 
the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. What were these guys afraid of, right? Uh, Well, they were obviously afraid. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone, the Roman seal. The Roman seal represented the power and authority of Rome, the power and authority of the Roman Empire. A cord was stretched, or maybe more than one cord, stretched across the face of the stone um, and the opening of the tomb, and then it was attached to the rock on each side of that that stone and each side of the opening. And each end would then be attached with sealing wax, S-E-A-L-I-N-G, sealing wax, um, or clay. And then the soldier in charge would take Pilate's signet ring and impress into that soft wax or clay the Roman seal. And thus any tampering with the stone would be known would be revealed, would be obvious. Everyone, anyone trying to remove the stone from the tomb's entrance would have broken the seal and incurred the wrath of the Roman Empire, uh, which ultimately meant death for doing such a thing. Uh, That was the wrath of Roman law, which was death. Uh, And so you had the Roman seal, but not only was the tomb sealed by a Roman seal, but fact number six is a Roman guard was assigned to guard the tomb. And the chief priests and the Pharisees remembered. They remembered that Jesus had predicted his resurrection, and they thought that the disciples would steal the body and then what? Fake a resurrection. So they asked for a Roman guard to secure the tomb. And in Matthew 27... 65 and 66, Pilate, we read that before, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, folks, this is just great. And this is why. This is why this is so wonderful. The enemies of Christ made the grave so secure that when Jesus did appear, there could only be one explanation the resurrection. Amen? Yeah, that's why. Therefore, they could not convincingly claim that the cowardly disciples came and stole the body. It'd make them look like total idiots because they had gone to such great lengths to secure the tomb. The grave was just too secure for such a claim to be convincing. And they also couldn't claim that Jesus wasn't really dead, as the liberal theologians do, that in the cool, damp tomb he revived, he wriggled out of the grave clothes, and he pushed the stone out of the way and and went on to appear to be... No. In fact, Merrill Unger, get this to work here. 
Merrill F. Unger, he says this, the precautions his enemies took to make the sepulcher sure, sealing it and stationing a guard, only resulted in God's overruling the plans of the wicked and offering indisputable proof of the king's resurrection. End quote. What a wonderful truth. Now, a Roman guard, we'll back up to that in a minute. A Roman guard consisted of four to eight soldiers. Each soldier was trained to uh, himself depend and protect six, sque- six square feet, I'll get it out, six square feet of ground and defend that from an entire army. So these Roman soldiers were pretty tough and they knew what they were doing. Four of the soldiers would take the watch while the other four rested and to fall asleep when on duty was punishable by what? We all know, by death, right? We understand that. Professor Albert Roper uh, writes this concerning the Roman soldiers. And he says, The Roman seal affixed to the stone before Joseph's tomb was far more sacred to them, meaning to the Romans, than all the philosophy of Israel or the sanctity of her ancient creed. Soldiers cold-blooded enough to gamble over a dying victim's cloak are not the kind of men to be hoodwinked by timid Galileans or to jeopardize their Roman necks by sleeping on their post. End quote. And so a Roman guard was assigned to guard the tomb. And when Pilate said, you guys go and you make that grave as secure as you know how, well, they did that, you know, they did that. And uh, again, which makes, which is to our benefit in terms of understanding how secure that grave was and how ridiculous it would sound that the Lord Jesus just revived and pushed the stone out of the way or that the disciples stole the body. None of that works because of all the preparations that were done. The seventh fact, the seventh fact that I want to mention, and you know, I I should should have said it in the beginning, uh, there's a zillion facts we could talk about concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We're just looking at some of them, obviously. But number seven is the absence of the disciples. The absence of the disciples. They were gone. They were long gone, in fact. In Matthew 26, 56, we find that Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible says at that time, all the disciples left him and fled. And one of them even escaped out of his clothes, if you remember that, right? They all left him and fled. And they went home. They ran home. The cowardly disciples left Jesus to face his fate alone. And I cannot say honestly here today, I can't say to you that I would have done anything different. Sadly, knowing myself, right? And had I been in the exact situation, um, that's what happened. In fact, Peter even denied knowing Christ. Three times he denied him. One writer described the disciples by saying, The disciples secreted themselves in their lodgings, and nothing is heard of them until the startling news is brought to them by the Magdalene on the morning of the third day. Thereupon two, and two only, have the great temerity or courage to venture forth 
to learn for themselves if the news brought them by Mary could be as reported by her or was as they themselves believed just idle talk. The whole demeanor of the disciples is one of abject fright and self-preservation. All of these facts, folks, in reality, all of these facts are in reality part of what we might call the pre-resurrection scene. I mentioned that already. And because the actual resurrection of Christ changed these things so that the total opposite was true and is true. You can read about this. I'm not going to take the time this morning. Read about it in John 20, 1 through 18, what I'm about to tell you. John 20, 1 through 18, and Matthew 28, 1 through 10. In those passages, you will see that the total opposite of what had been the facts, the facts we've talked about, is now true. Jesus was dead. Now he is alive. The tomb was occupied. Now it is empty. The body was embalmed and mummified now it is free the stone was secure and in place now it is totally removed from its place the roman seal was intact now it has been broken the roman guard was ready and alert now they are unconscious and the disciples were hiding out now they have come out of hiding what a difference amen The resurrection changed everything, as we say. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ turned everything around. Whereas the disciples, once discouraged and cowardly, they went on to boldly proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation and the resurrection. And of course, they especially did that once the Holy Spirit came upon them as those uh, witnesses and made them bold and powerful witnesses consider this truth a man will die think think this through a man will die for something that he thinks to be true even if it's not right but a man will not willingly die for something that he knows to be false Yet hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Christians over the centuries, throughout the centuries, have died martyrs' deaths because they know the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely true. Amen? I mean, folks, I would not be here. I would not leave my eight grandkids up in Michigan in the winter to come down here if the resurrection was not true. Meaning, I wouldn't be out ministering God's word to anybody if the resurrection were not true, right? We wouldn't do the things we do as Christians if it were not true. But we know it's true. We believe in our hearts it's true. And God has given us plenty of evidence as to uh, the fact of its truth, that it's a true historical fact. Therefore, the Bible says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Amen? So please ask yourself this morning, 
Do I believe in Jesus Christ? That he is the son of God? God come in human flesh? That he died to be punished for my sins? And that God raised him from the dead? And ask yourself, am I willing to turn away, if you never have before, turn away from my sin and unbelief and turn to Jesus Christ and trust him alone for my eternal life, for my eternal destiny, for for my salvation? Trust him alone to save me from sin and death and hell and the grave. Ephesians 1.7 says, "In in him we have redemption Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And as you know, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Maybe you're like the Apostle Peter, who went from denying Jesus Christ and being totally discouraged. I mean, if anyone was ever down in the dumps, it was Peter at that point, right? And going from that to being totally forgiven of all of his sins and becoming a powerful and bold witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have time to do it today, but I I love, do a little study sometime at the before and after of the life of Peter, you know, denying Christ, swearing, cussing, whatever he did, all of that stuff. And then after Pentecost, and he's gotten the Holy Spirit, what a difference, what a change. That can happen to you. It's the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a fitting conclusion to our meeting today. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is alive. Oh, Father, by the power of your Spirit, help us to go out into this world and be faithful ambassadors, faithful representatives of him and of his great truth that he has paid for all of our sins. He has procured for us salvation and eternal life, and he's proven it by rising from the dead. Thank you so much, Lord, for that. We give you the praise and the glory today in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you.